Hello all, welcome to day three of Orthodontics in Conference. We've been looking at the 9th International Orthodontic Congress by the WFO. Today is the last and final day of the lecture which is being covered. So today what we've got lined up for you are 10 lectures and we're covering the topics of aligners, the use of mini plates, root resorption, looking at occlusion and also bruxism as well. So it's going to be a good one. We've got speakers such as Benedict Wilms, Hugo de Klerk and Marie Kluppers Jatman to name a few. I'll catch up with you guys at the end of the podcast to go through some of my reflections. Enjoy the episode guys. Welcome to the Orthodontics in Conference podcast, where Farouk brings you the summary of key lectures from orthodontic conferences around the world with your host, Farouk Ahmed. Next lecture is entitled Improving the Predictability of Aligner Therapy with Mini Screws, and this was by Benedict Wilms. Benedict started off by describing the advantages of aligners, their aesthetics, which has been shown, the less risk to patients' health, as there's less white spot lesions by PTEN 2019. But there are some limitations as to what can be achieved with aligners. There's poor expansion that takes place, and it's mainly due to tipping, shown by Hooley's paper in 2017. Poor space closure, that was shown by Papa Dimitri in 2019. Although the appliance has been shown to be reasonably favourable when it comes to distalization, But only up to 2 millimetres. So what Benedict asked, well, well, these challenges with aligners, can we conquer them and resolve them through the use of temporary anchorage devices? Can we distalize more than two millimeters? Can we mesialize effectively? And can we expand bodily? Benedict started off by describing the position of his TAD insertion. So the location of TAD position for Benedict is favoured in the anterior palate. Now, his success rate is shown to be at 98% in this region. He described the T-zone, so this is just behind the third palatal rugae in the palate, and also extending either side of the mid-palatal suture. This is in comparison to buccal tads, where success rates have been reported at 71%. So the first point is, well, how do we distalize more effectively incorporating temporary anchorage devices? Benedict spoke about a two-stage protocol. That involves placing a TAD from the outset using a slider or a Benny slider, which involves anterior palatal TADs. Once the distalization has been achieved using this appliance, then to embark on having a line of treatment. And the advantage of this process is that there's no synchronization required between the two. Now, there is a one-stage process available as well. He described it through. So it involves distalization using an alternative appliance as well as using aligners. How does this work? Well, initially it involves a scan for aligners. Once the aligner is inserted, the distalizing slider, or the Benny slider, is then inserted. Now, this allows both to take place simultaneously, so it's really efficient. However, it does require synchronization between the amount of distalization taking place and what's been planned with the aligner movement. Benedict gave, went on to give some tips as to how this process can take place and some clinical pearls. He started off by describing, well, the rate of distalization is the key. And it's been shown that the Benny slider, or the distalizing slider, distalizes at 0.6 millimeters per month. And this can then be incorporated into the aligner sequence. 
typically this, the distalizing slider involves bands being placed in the first molars. It doesn't work very well with aligners. They don't fit around them particularly well. There's a lo loss of retention that happens. So he's now moved on to using bonded tubes, which is just simply a metal extension on the palatal aspect of the upper first molar, which is then bonded on using composite. Now these metal tubes or bonded tubes are placed prior to scanning. They're bonded on and then the scan takes place and goes to the aligner company. And this way it ensures that there's always going to be a good fit. Or he suggested having a window. Now to deactivate the appliance, what he uses is simply a ligature which attaches from the uh, distalizing slider itself through to this bonded tube. And therefore there's no further activation that's possible to distalize the tooth. Benedict went on to speak about mesialization, and it uses the similar appliance of the mesial slider. And this was by Wilms in 2019. Now his advice when it comes to mesializing teeth and mass is to ensure that actually there's posterior attachments, as we've already got with our bonded tubes, but also having something attached middle of the arch with more bonded tubes. So almost making a setup similar to rapid maxillary expansion where we've got premolar and posterior attachments. This ensures that the whole arch is mesialized utilizing the skeletal anchorage. Expansion. So for expansion, he prefers to use two screws in the anterior palate. Now he describes something I've not heard of before, which is a BMX expander. So what is it? Well, it's a prefabricated RME appliance, which requires no laboratory work. And it simply is about placing the tads in the anterior palate. This expander, he mentioned, can be adjusted chair side. So once it's in position, it's adjusted into the point of where the tads are placed. It can be pre-activated to get it to the exact right size. And he mentioned that the advantage of using something like, he mentioned the advantage of using MARPI, the Miniscrew Assisted Rapid Palatal Expansion, is that we can actually carry out slow expansion at the same time, because there's no risk of teeth being tipped, which again for me was something which is a new idea but actually if we go back and look at our RME concept the idea of having such heavy and large forces was partly to do with hyalinizing the posterior teeth so there was no dental movement that occurred and therefore it was all skeletal changes that happened it was an interesting idea I really liked it another great talk from a great speaker The next lecture is by Zi Zhao on the defects, risks and countermeasures of clear aligners. And I must say this was my favourite lecture from the third day. It had everything in it. So he went through the issues with aligners and showed a really comprehensive understanding and explanation. Uh, went through how to correct for these defects or discrepancies with aligners. And he had clinical tips as well as a case at the end. For me it had all the bits to keep me engaged. So to start off with all the defects, what are the issues with aligners? He broke this down really clearly into the issues with the material itself, the issues with the efficiency of the aligner, and the issues with the mechanics of using aligners. So starting off with the material, to start off with, he said the material is not 3D printed. It is made from a conventional process. Even for digitally planned aligners, so the membrane material that's used is the same for all patients. And describe the consequence of this. Well, we've got a variety of malocclusions out there, but actually the thickness of the plastic, i.e. the force, is the same for each tooth movement in each case that's taking place.
So we've got an issue with the material. He spoke about the efficiency. Now he summarises quite nicely, and it was refer and he referenced Kravitz's paper from 2009, and also Simon's paper. The issues with tooth movement and aligners relate to extrusion mainly, and also intrusive movements. And also derotating the rounder teeth, the canines and the premolars are quite difficult. Incisor anchorage and also posterior anchorage is a challenge. Now, the defect in the mechanics explained this really well, that the force that's being placed for the aligner is really quite far from the centre of rotation, which means that we're going to get tipping that takes place into the space and going to create the roller coaster effect. Now, how can we conquer these issues? Well, it comes down to our appreciation of literature, as Zio said. So there was a paper by Zio in 2019 that looked at the efficiency of overbite reduction, and it showed that actually we only get 50% of the overbite reduction that we wish for. Well, the overcorrection for this is to aim for 100% anterior intrusion, i.e. edge-to-edge bite. He then went on to explain more about the anchorage side from an overbite correction side. Well, we know that the extrusive movements are quite poor with aligners. So, if we're intending to intrude the lower incisors, the reciprocal effect is that we want the, ex the premolars to extrude. Works favourably for our overbite correction. But because that form of efficiency in movement is poor with aligners, it doesn't take place. So the solution to it is to have a long horizontal attachment placed on the premolars to in effect grip and hold on to that tooth. So as the lower incisors intrude, we are going to get that predictable extrusion of the premolars to allow the process to take place. He spoke about bite ramps for overbites and how having bite ramps on the upper three to three maintains anterior contact and he spoke about being really really key to overbite correction because if we don't we can start to get over eruption of the anterior teeth as well he spoke about staging intrusion in really deep bite cases because of the poor control of anchorage that happens with aligners and it simply involves breaking the anchorage up so first intruding the lower two to two and then following on from that, a second stage of intruding just the lower canines. He spoke about how anterior tooth talk was poorly effective, and that was by Ziao's paper again from 2019. But he gave some numbers which was really insightful, that for every one millimetre of retraction, we lose 2.5 degrees of anterior torque. So one millimetre of retraction, 2.5 minutes of torque. And once we've got that number, what Ziao said is that we can then add that in as overcorrection for our torque loss when it comes to our aligner design. He went on to describe power ridges. And he said power ridges, they are produce a counter moment. And he described them as being really effective at aiding bodily movement. He described why. Well, it's because they are closer to the centre of rotation. Typically, they tend to be at the gingival margin. But he exercised a word of caution, is that tracking can be lost with power ridges if you have issues with cooperation. He then went on to give some top tips. So this is about attachment placement. So he described extrusive movements. If you want to extrude a tooth, you place the attachment on the tooth. Sounds relatively simple, but that's a direction that we're going to lose the traction on the tooth or the tracking. Now for intrusion movements, he's described, well actually, we're going to have a good hold of the tooth, but it's the reciprocal or the anchorage that we're going to lose. So what we need to do is have attachments on the adjacent teeth 
to the tooth we want to intrude to ensure we have anchorage. He spoke about the attachment design matching the movement type. So, uh, for example, a horizontal rectangular attachment for vertical movements. It's perpendicular to the direction we want the tooth to move in. Z then went to give on an example of a clinical case. Now, this was a classic distalization case. And what he did really succinctly was divide up the direction of force, the reciprocal effects, and how to resolve it. So just the pure distalization movement. There's a reactionary force that takes place as we distalize the upper posterior teeth, which proclines the upper incisors. He spoke about a way to resolve that was to use class two elastics. That's essential. If we're retracting the upper anterior teeth, we're going to get reactionary loss of the upper anterior torque, as we've already described. For that, we overcorrect the upper anterior torque, and we also incorporate power ridges. We get closer to the center of resistance, we're more likely to get our predictability of torque in those incisors. He spoke about reactionary extrusion of the upper and lower molars. He goes, that happens in distalization cases because we are distalizing the upper molars, so we're going to extrude them at the same time, but also using class two elastics. And he said, well, a simple way to resolve this is by building an intrusion to both the upper and to the lower molars. Next is a talk by Ali Hassan on clear aligner, how predictable it is. So Ali started off by describing the planned versus predicted movements for expansion were always statistically and that was by Hole in 2019. Now, the accuracy of intercanine expansion appears to be greater than that of posterior expansion. That was Zell's paper in 2018. So we had 80% intercanine expansion, and only 68% in that posterior segment. Now, he spoke about how we've got different degrees of correction that's taken place depending on the type of movement that occurs but we have good evidence to suggest overjet correction by Kerger in 2011 is good, as well as molar distalization. Now, Ali had conducted a study where he wanted to look at the transverse correction of aligners, but also anterior-posterior changes as well. So his study was interesting because rather than using study models as has been pretty much the standard for these types of experiments, he's been he used a cone beam CT. And he stated that the accuracy of cone beam CTs is higher than using study models and takes an element of subjectivity away. So there were 30 people included in this particular trial that he did. And what did he find? Well, for their treatment cases, they found that the expansion in the intercanine width when it was planned was 94%, less in the premolar segment at 81%, and worse in the intermolar distance at 50%. Now, he then looked at the anterior-posterior correction. This was interesting. So he found that when it came to proclining teeth, aligners were unpredictable. So they were very difficult for them to push things forward. But when it came to retroclination, he found they were really well predictable. And finally, when it came to looking at root movement, what he found was actually the roots moved very little in comparison to where they started in this particular study. Now, I did like this study, especially the idea that proclination is a challenge and retroclination is something we can do quite well. And I think that adds to my understanding of how aligners work. 
Next lecture was by Carloberta Werner entitled The Influence of Bone Density on Tooth Movement Biomechanics. I did like this lecture because it helped to paint in some of the details associated with corticotomies and the rise in popularity of the Regional Accelerated Phenomenon or RAP and how that process works. She started off by describing accelerated tooth movement evidence is poor and that's by the systematic review by Alan Bowie and the Cochrane review by Fleming in 2015. Carloberta went on to describe how does this regionally accelerated phenomenon work and I think she's described it the clearest I've heard so far. She described the process starts off with an insult and results in damage to the tissue. The process of healing and remodeling takes place. Now during this period of healing there is a reduction in the density of the bone. Because of the trauma that's happened there's an increase in bone turnover and therefore there's also an increase in tooth movement. So there's two aspects to this regional accelerated phenomenon from what she described. The first is a reduction in density of the bone and the second side is that there's more bone turnover and tooth movement taking place as a consequence. She described the process, so in the first seven days there's granulization that happens and then from one to four months we're left with this callus remodeling and that takes four months to then become a denser form of bone and that's why when applying this concept of RAP or Regional Accelerated Phenomenon it's usually only lasts for a period of four months whilst the bone is less dense and the amount of injury is proportional to the amount of the so-called RAP effect. Now what Carla Burnham was doing was carrying out an experiment and it was to carry out a corticotomy on a piece of bone, compare it to a non-corticotomized piece of bone and carry out finite model analysis to see what took place. And it was interesting findings. There was a greater tooth movement that took place in the corticotomy group. That's probably what we would expect. But the analysis was more in-depth using finite analysis. And what they found was that the moment-to-force ratio was lower for tooth movement where a corticotomy has taken place. And also the tooth movement itself lasted longer. I thought this was really interesting because then it means that actually the type of tooth movement may be influenced rather than just the rate of tooth movement that it occurs. The conclusion that Carl Berner had from their study was that a corticotomy should be done in the direction of the tooth movement occurring because that's where we have the reduction in density, that's where we're going to have the greater turnover of cells. So actually the movement should be in that particular direction. Now there has been controversy over this topic. I thought Carla Berner gave a very fair representation of their study uh, and also the literature that's out there. But it was an interesting concept that was put forward, corticotomy in the direction of the tooth movement uh, and for the change in the type of tooth movement that occurs with a corticotomy. Next lecture was by Glenn Samishima, entitled Orthodontic Root Resorption, an Update for the Clinician. I liked Glenn's presentation. He gave a comprehensive overview of the topic, filled in some of the blanks that emerged in my own memory over the years, but also explained why things happened and what to do when things occur. So he described root resorption as the irreversible shortening of roots due to tooth movement, i.e. due to us.
you describe what happens on the tooth surface itself whilst the tooth moves. So the, these craters, these kind of holes that get emerged on the cementum due to overactivation of the cementoblasts. Now, on most of the route, it seems to repair itself, these craters. But for some reason, the apex, and he was quite frank in saying, we don't know why, these craters seem to persist and seem to get bigger. The prevalence of root resorption, about 25% of patients will have up to 2 millimeters, with up to 5% having up to 4 millimeters of root resorption. Now, he quoted a paper of etiology by Hartsfield in 2010 that stated, actually, 65% of orthodontic-induced root resorption is of a genetic origin. 15% is associated directly with art mechanics, and 20% is unknown. And that st states to me that this is a field we do not know that much about at this stage. He described the predisposing factors, so there's no difference in genders, there's a slight increase in adults versus children, but what was great is that he interpreted this information and he said, well, actually, it doesn't make much of a difference at the age. There are conditions such as idiopathic root resorption that we need to watch out for and family history is a good way to elicit some of this information. He spoke about the treatment factors and how they con and which ones contribute to it. Extended treatment times has been shown by Roscoe in 2015 as to be a key factor for root resorption. But he explained why this happens and there's an interaction between genetics and he gave a really simple explanation that there's an allele which has a threshold to cope with root resorption and the forces with it. After it gets to a certain time it gives way resulting in greater root resorption occurring. This was a paper quoted by al -Kassimi. Now the apical displacement i.e. how far the root moves also has a key predictive factor for the amount of root resorption that's going to occur. This was studied by Inglesias in 2017. Now in that study it also described overjet and extractions and actually Glenn's interpretation of this was actually it all relates to the apical movement of the roots and yes with large overjets and extractions we are going to move the roots so actually the cause is actually the apical displacement. He describes systematic reviews on the topic, of which there's been a number. And to summarise, apical displacement and duration of treatment increases root resorption by Sengal 2004. Interestingly, a systematic review by Weltman in 2010 showed that if root resorption takes place, using light forces for intrusion has been shown to reduce the rates of root resorption. Increased forces have been shown to increase root resorption. That was by Roscoe 2015. And, and the most recent one by Curl in 2019 showed that increased continuous forces, intrusion directions of forces, and treatment duration overall increase the rate of root resorption. Now, does root resorption occur on root canal treated teeth? Well, the study by Castro in 2014 showed that there's no difference in teeth who have had root canal treatment. When it comes to use of aligners and root resorption, what Glenn stated was that actually, from the systematic review by Inglesias in 2017, there is no real difference in root resorption. And that makes sense, according to Glenn, as that it doesn't depend on what appliance is causing the movement. It depends on what type of tooth movements occurring. He mentioned about microperforation and photobiomodulation, some of the hot topics we described on day two of the conference, and we still don't know what effects they have on root resorption. 
So what happens if root resorption occurs? Well, he describes stopping for a three-month period. And actually, when we, resume root, when we resume our orthodontic forces, we are less likely to get root resorption through having this brace or force holiday. But what happens if it's occurred? Well, the prognosis of long-term root resorption seems pretty good, actually. When we've looked into studies of where lateral incisors have had severe root resorption associated with canines, with a 20% increase in the crown-to-root ratio, so now the crowns are longer than the roots, actually, these teeth still survive. And that was Becker's study in 2009. There is an increase in mobility when there is extreme root resorption, but it doesn't usually tend to result in the loss of teeth. Now, what he suggested was that teeth with severe root resorption, not the extreme ones, but the majority of severely root-resorbed teeth usually tend to stabilise. And actually, we've got to get the message to dentists that when patients have severe root resorption, actually those teeth can still stay for a very long time. Next is a lecture by Anne-Marie Kippers-Yatman entitled An Evidence-Based Approach to External Apical Root Resorption. So Anne-Marie started off by describing root resorption and its processes take place depending on the shape of the periodontal ligaments. And she described how the middle of the root, the PDL, is the narrowest space and therefore there's a biggest risk of hyalinization occurring. So what, what happens with this hyalinization to explain root resorption? Anne-Marie broke this down really quite nicely. She described how there is death to the cells in that region and the necrotic tissue is required to be removed. This is done by mononucleoside cells and multinucleated cells. Macrophages come into the area, and what she stated was that the cytokines that are produced also cause differentiation of osteoclasts, which then almost indiscriminately clean out the area, which also includes part of the root. The timeline for this process occurring is after 10 days. Now, the incidence of root resorption is stated at 90%, so all, nearly all patients will show some signs of root resorption. 18% are greater than 2 millimeters, and 1 to 5% greater than a third of the root. Now, her evidence-based approach looked at, well, when do we know what's happening with root resorption, and what can we predict the outcome is going to be? And what she showed was that a radiograph at 6 months showing root resorption has a strong correlation to the amount of root resorption taking place at the end. In essence, at six months, we have an idea if they're going to have significant root resorption at the end. Amory's study was really based around the paper that was being produced by Sodenka in 2020, which is the development of practice clinical guidelines for orthodontically induced external root resorption. I highly recommend everybody get a copy of this paper and keep it with them. So it's a consensus meeting that took place and the recommendations that came from it. And the key take-home messages are take an OPG at 12 months in treatment. We have the strongest correlation at that point in time as to what will happen at the end of treatment. Extraction treatment has a higher risk of root resorption. So we should inform patients who are having extractions they are at a greater risk of root resorption. What happens if root resorption, root resorption occurs? Well, root resorption, she defined the detection of it is at two millimeters plus. I mean, to tell patients what the options are at that stage, including limited objectives. Have a three-month break from any forces. That's Lavanda's paper from 1993. 
and then avoid forces that increase root resorption following restarting treatment. And when we restart, another radiograph at six months. This was a great paper because it really indicates clinically what we should be doing from now on for root resorption on our patients. Next was a paper by Roberto Justice entitled Stability of Open Bite Treatment with Spur Therapy. Roberto started off by describing how the swallowing process takes place and it's based upon the hyoid bone being moved up and down with the suprahyoid and infrahyoid muscles. He described that this is a complex process of muscular movement. He described the relapse of anterior open bites being at 20% and this was Greenlee's systematic review from 2011. Now he pointed out that the tongue is the key factor when it comes to relapse of anterior open bites. He suggested that how this process of altering the tongue position occurs. So it's an establishment of an engram. He explained this and it's to do with the reflex arc how we respond to harm, what do we do in an automatic sense. He described a way to change this is, for example, by putting a nail on a door. And if we receive the stimulus of pain, that results in a change to our motor response as to where we normally put our hand on, on, the, door, hand, on the door, and that's a learned engram. And he mentioned that relapse is due to this continuous tongue posture not to do with the function of the tongue. It's not to do with swallowing and having an anterior seal. It's about where the tongue stays in our mouth during non-function. There was an investigation that just that Roberto took part in in 1990, and he looked at anterior open bites and the stability following treatment utilizing spurs. So spurs are an appliance which can either be bonded, um, but it's typically a TPA design which extends anteriorly and has spurs associated in the anterior region. And the idea is to create this, this feeling to alert the tongue to not be in that position. Now he was very keen to avoid the word pain uh, and, and instead use the word to retrain the tongue or to remind the tongue not to be in that position. He mentioned a study where the pain shown from this was considered to be insignificant. So in his study he found that the patients who were non-growing and had anterior open bite correction had 0% relapse following their treatment. Patients who were growing and had tongue spur therapy had 17% relapse, whereas the, the control group, the non-spur group, had 35 to 43% relapse, almost doubling two and a half times greater than the growing group. He mentioned about extraction versus non-extraction and how extraction therapy has been shown to be more stable. That's Janssen's paper. His conclusion was that using tongue spurs increases the stability in anterior open bite cases. He mentioned contraindications to this process are for patients of lip incompetency, poor muscular control and unerupted lateral incisors before using this therapy. Next is a lecture entitled Occlusal Vulnerability, Hypervigilance, Neuroplasticity and Adaptation. And this was by Ambra Michelotti. Now this was a good lecture, it gave an overview of the topic of occlusion and TMD and the way things are going forwards. He started off by the myths. 
So he described there's no functional relationship between the condyle and the glenoid fossa. This is not true. He said that condyle itself actually articulates with the articular eminence. So therefore any changes, we're really looking at the contact of the condyle with the articular eminence. And that's by Green in 2018. He mentioned how the condyle position varies depending on what stage of mastication we are in. He spoke about ideal position of the condyle and he stated there is no ideal position in the fossa. It depends upon the fatigue of the muscles, the function, the posture and the tongue pressure. And this was a study by Rinuch in 2006. He spoke about no association between condylar position and the signs of TMD. And that was in the large review by Imana Goddadam in 2016. Variation in anatomy is the greatest predictor of TMD, about 30%. However, condylar position is not. Occlusion resulting in TMD. Now, the evidence is quite low. This was a paper by Turp in 2012. Now, a very recent uh, long-term 30-year cohort study by Oliver in 2020 showed that there's no association with occlusal features in TMD and orthodontics is not associated with outcomes of TMD. So he described that this is still a controversial topic and doing a literature review that he did showed that actually there's over 2,400 articles on this topic. Yet the definitions of occlusion and TMD vary depending on which paper you read. So he put forward two terms, occlusion interference and occlusal sensitivity. And this is simply the disruption to the occlusion. Now this was postulated historically to be the cause of bruxism, and this was by Ramfordjot in 1961, but also Roth in 1973. He stated how there is no evidence for occlusal interferences causing TMD or causing bruxism. This was a paper by Manfredini in 2018 and List in 2010. Usually, the masticatory system is capable of adapting continuously to almost all types of dental intervention. That was Green's paper in 2015. Now, when it comes to orthodontics being an interference, in subjects, in patients who have got a history of TMD, they show a greater effect to their TMD sensitivity. That was a paper by Bell in 2003 and 2006. So Ombre took this last statement of the patients who have a history of TMD having different effects of occlusal interference, and he carried out some investigations. So he looked at occlusal interference by bonding something onto a patient's teeth, which disrupted their occlusion, and that was in healthy patients and patients with TMD. And what he found was that the healthy subjects had a reduction in clenching and avoided the occlusal disturbance. The TMD subjects, however, they didn't carry out any avoidance behaviour. And the conclusion from this was that patients who have TMD have reduced occlusal adaptability to occlusal interferences. Next, the question was, does daytime bruxism cause a reduction in occlusal adaptability? So they looked at patients again, and they found that healthy patients had a reduction in clenching and avoidance of the occlusal disturbance. Whereas patients in TMD, they also actually had a reduction in their clenching. So actually occlusal interferences does change patients' daytime bruxism. However, these same patients also had increased discomfort and pain. So TMD patients have more pain 
although they may have less actual daytime bruxism. Next was a question about, well, what is the perception of pain of healthy patients versus TMD patients? This is a really simple experiment. I really liked it. This is where they placed a separator in patients who were healthy and recorded their pain outcomes, and also patients who had TMD. And the conclusion was that patients with TMD had higher pain. So therefore, the, the overall conclusion was that TMD patients have higher psychological distress and a higher state of anticipation of pain which means they receive a greater quantity of pain when they are stimulated and have reduced occlusal adaptability. The other term was of occlusal sensitivity. This was by Enkling in 2010, and it's defined as to the ability to detect small changes between teeth. Now, those small changes are imperative to function because they control our jaw position, our mandibular movements, and also our occlusal forces. Now, there's quite a large range that the human being can detect occlusal changes, anywhere from 2 to 27 microns. But patients who have TMD have, are on the lower side of that spectrum, so much smaller changes are ones that they're aware of compared to their average population. And Ambre carried out an investigation to look at, well, what changes with orthodontics and patients' occlusal sensitivity? So he carried out an investigation where he looked at TMD patients and stimulated some periodontal discomfort indicating tooth movement and found that patients with TMD had greater occlusal sensitivity than normal patients. He stimulated pain perception, so for example greater posturing of the mandible to see what would take place and he found that again TMD patients had greater sensitivity in pain and occlusal sensitivity as well. Interestingly, the third one showed that caffeine caused a greater increase in occlusal sensitivity in both groups. The conclusion from this interesting uh, lecture and two very interesting studies was that patients who have got TMD have greater psychological distress from maladaptation caused by the TMD. Hypervigilance, or patients who have TMD, have greater occlusal sensitivity. Next is a lecture by Soichi Meiyawaki, entitled The Importance of Occlusion and Physiological Significance of Sleep Bruxism. This is an interesting lecture on a topic that I did not have any background in, and it gave a good overview as to what the relationship was between the processes and where things are going to in the future. So the relationship between occlusion and the digestive tract, so just taking braces out of the equation. So mastication itself he stated, suppresses initial gastric emptying. That's by Takada in 2012. So the idea is that we are wanting to increase the rate of gastric emptying and any delays to that process result in the potential to have gastroesophageal reflux. Next was the relationship between malocclusion and gastric emptying. So patients who have got a malocclusion have reduced masticatory function a reduction therefore takes place in the gastric emptying because it's taking longer for them to eat. And that's by Koki in 2018. There's been a study looking at gastroesophageal reflux in class 3 paces, cases and found that it was greater in class 3 cases than it was for the normal population. 
and with this food being kept in the stomachs for longer there can be a transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation i.e. the acid from the stomach can come back up into the esophagus resulting in heartburn. There are other effects of gastroesophageal reflux which can also include cancer it's commonly found in the elderly population and also causes erosive wear to the teeth. Next he spoke about sleep bruxism and how it results in tooth wear. Now what's interesting is that 40% of non-bruxis also have signs of tooth wear and he mentioned that it's a more complex process looking at tooth wear. Bruxis can have gingival recession, broken prostheses, 65% of bruxis suffer from headaches. And there is an association between bruxism and TMD. That was a systematic review by Jimenez Silva in 2017. He also spoke about hypertrophy of the masseter muscles being a key outcome for patients who bruxist. He described the risk of having sleep bruxism. So it's associated with obstructive sleep apnea, microarousal, and also psychological stress. So what are the causes of sleep bruxism? What makes somebody do this? Well, it was considered initially to be part of a malocclusion, which is a theory that has been discredited now. This was proposed by Green in 1982. It's now thought that it's a complex process. One of the key theories at this stage is the sensing by the periodontal membranes which modifies muscular activity. That was Levine's paper in 2000. So what does that translate to? Well, it means that the central nervous system, the CNS, is the cause of the bruxism, but it's still unclear as to exactly what does what and when. A systematic review looking at swallowing showed that there's an increase in swallowing for patients who have sleep bruxism. Now, the theory of relating gastroesophageal reflux disorder and sleep bruxism. Now, I thought this was the, 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 the light box moment that took place um, where the description was given. So, gastroesophageal reflux. Acid refluxing into the esophagus results in microarousal. We are stimulated by this disturbance that takes place of acid being in our, in our esophagus. And this results in an increase in bruxism. Now, that is something which is then explained through the body's response, or the reflex arc, that when we have acid in our stomachs, our brain is thinking that there's been a delay in our gastric emptying, i.e. we haven't chewed our food properly, we haven't chewed our food enough, and that's what's resulted in this delay in our gastric emptying. So the brain induces our teeth to grind together, to reduce the chances of having delayed gastric emptying. Now, on top of this, we want to try and buffer the acid that's coming into our esophagus, so we want to increase our swallowing as well. That increase in swallowing and increase in bruxism results in worsening of the gastroesophageal reflux taking place because there's no food entering the stomach. It was shown that 73% of patients with gastroesophageal reflux disorder suffered from sleep bruxism. This was a paper by Mengato in 2016. There's a strong association between sleep bruxism and gastroesophageal reflux disorder. That was a systematic review also by Castro Florio in 2017. I thought this was an interesting paper on a topic that I hope to see more information coming out on.
The next lecture was entitled Bruxism, an orthodontist perspective by Mauro Forella. He started off by defining the two types of Bruxism, day Bruxism and sleep Bruxism. Day Bruxism affects 20% of the population, that's by Levine in 2008. It's a very different notion to sleep Bruxism. So this is a repetitive clenching, it's not a grinding. The risk factors aren't fully understood, but it's multifactorial. Now, what is clenching? So normal clenching is 20 minutes of the day, and that was a classic study by Grad in 1969. Day bruxisms usually have a psychological factor predisposing them to this, and also muscle pain. Now, sleep bruxism, on the other side, is a rhythmic masticatory muscle activity. It's grinding of teeth. Its prevalence is high in children at 18% and less in adults at 8%. Its etiology is, is slightly better understood. We've got alcohol, stress, caffeine, smoking, and acid reflux that's there. How frequent are the episodes of grinding? And this was interesting. So patients who have got sleep bruxism usually have five episodes of grinding per hour, whereas a non-sleep bruxist is usually two per hour. So sleep bruxist, it tends to be an episode of about eight seconds per episode. Now that means that the total grinding that's taking place at night is actually in total only eight minutes. That was Levine's paper in 1996. What about the force? How much force are we using with night bruxism or sleep bruxism? Well, the force for these for this parafunctional habit is 22.5 kilograms of force and of course that needs to be put into context of what normal forces are for chewing which are much higher around about three times as much like around about 70 kilograms so actually sleep bruxists tend to have not that many more frequent episodes than the normal population but also the force is reduced in comparison to daytime forces now, sleep bruxism has consequences. It can cause obstructive sleep apnea, it can cause gastric reflux and drying off the mouth. Sleep bruxists tend to have a short duration and it tends to be of a low intensity when it comes to the forces on their teeth. So, so far we're hearing that it's not that clinically relevant to patients with respect to their tooth wear and dentition. So next he addressed this with tooth wear. So he spoke about how tooth wear itself is not a reliable marker for ongoing bruxism. He spoke about the wear we see is usually a combination of both attrition but also erosion, and there's an overlap between the two. He describes saliva and how saliva varies from patient to patient, but a small reduction in pH occurs when patients go to sleep and this can have a massive impact upon the buffering effect of saliva when it comes to acid inside the mouth. He then spoke about there's no cutoff point as to when day bruxism starts which is interesting and, and, and states to me that we don't have enough understanding of this new component of parafunctional habit to even have a definition of it at this stage so there's a lot more work left to be done. He went on to then describe the orthodontic relevance of day bruxism. So bruxism and muscular forces reduce during orthodontic treatment. That's been shown by Goldrick in 1994, but also by Micoletti in 2005. He spoke about RME. So RME has actually shown a reduction in bruxism in children by up to 65%. That was Bellarive in 2015. Now, splint therapy, there's been a Cochrane review that shows there's insufficient evidence to support its use.
Interestingly, using a twin block has been shown to improve sleep breathing disorders by Idris in 2018. That paper did also show that it's a transient improvement, so only whilst the appliance is being used. So what are the effects of wear on the dentition? Well, patients who have got tooth wear, there tends to be a compensation that occurs. And this was new information for me. So it's the idea that the upper and lower teeth are in a process of attrition. We get retroclination of both upper and lower incisors, but we also get extrusion of the upper and lower incisors as there's this compensatory eruption that takes place to maintain articulation. So what should we do when it comes to orthodontic treatment? He described, well, we need to decompensate these patients. We need to procline the upper and lower incisors. We need to intrude the upper and lower incisors. And he gave some clinical tips about avoiding the use of ceramic brackets in the lower arch. But also, looking at the patient holistically, so there are risk factors we know contribute to this process. Alcohol, caffeine, smoking, diet, stress, and to advise patients on these other, other outcomes. Restoration should be carried out with minimally invasive procedures. He spoke about orthodontic patients who have debruxism and how there's a greater effect to the occlusal interferences for these patients than there are to the average patient and they can develop jaw discomfort and headaches. So this is a real red flag for orthodontic treatment. And that's by Micheletti in 2012. So if we see patients who have got day clenching or there's a diagnosis of it, our orthodontic treatment may predispose these guys to having greater pain and TMD. Now the conclusions from this lecture were that bruxism is less severe during orthodontic treatment. Orthodontic appliances can be used to help manage heavily worn dentition. And for patients who suffer from day bruxism, we should consider avoiding up orthodontic appliances such as extra oral forced appliances, removable appliances, mandibular advancement appliances. <laughs> Hi guys, that is us done for the day three and the final day of the International Orthodontic Congress with the IOC. Hope you guys have enjoyed the podcast. We've managed to cover 33 lectures in less than three hours. And I wanted to give some reflections on my final day at the IOC. So Alina has featured quite a lot in today's episode. And from this, I'm taking away the, the use of TADS as a separate mechanics to correct malocclusion and then go on to aligners. To think about overcorrection, where I know the aligner mechanics are going to be weak. I think the 2020 clinical guidelines for root resorption are a key factor. Taking an OPG at 12 months, but also warning patients who are having extractions of further risk of root resorption. Looking at occlusal interferences, so patients who have a history of TMD, warning them they are likely to experience more discomfort than other patients in treatment. And bruxism is a brand new topic to me in its relationship with orthodontics, but identifying day bruxism and night bruxism is a key, but also looking at for gastroesophageal reflux disorder and its influence upon wear. That's it guys, hope you've enjoyed the episode. Please do subscribe and look forward to the next episode and the next conference. Till then, take care and stay safe.